Elizabeth, I have a surprise for you. Great. Okay, tell me what we are watching right now. Okay, so on your computer, you have a YouTube video yeah. open. And, boom. Oh, boom. Okay, so there are people falling out of an airplane. They're skydiving. On purpose. <laughs> yes, on purpose. So they're flipping like, together. This, they're you, holding hands. Yes, and you're seeing like sky and then ground and then sky. Like the horizon line keeps changing. They're supposed to be holding there's hands. There's a lot of, yeah, there's hand holding. There's like. Oh, my God. There's like 900 people in the air together. Okay, there's more like one, two, three. Okay, there's like 12. But all we see is sky is because whoever's filming is like falling with their back to the earth. Everyone's wearing these helmets with face masks. Don't they look and... like extras from Tron? Sure. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm assuming. Well, I'm not assuming. I know that the reason that you're showing me this video is because <laughs> it started with the name of our guest splashed across the screen yeah. in text. <laughs> You are a great detective. Yes, yes. Our guest today is professional skydiver and Red Bull Air Force member Amy Shemalecki. And that is exactly why I showed you this. But it's also because, like, I think that it's kind of wild that someone can make a living jumping out of a plane and swirling in the air, like, holding hands with other humans, forming, like, a giant human hula hoop thing. I really think they'd appreciate how technical, like the technical language you're using to describe this. Well, I mean, okay, they're smarty pants. Have you ever skydove, skydived, skydiven? Have you ever skydiven, Elizabeth? I was just waiting to see how many other ways you could butcher the word skydive. Skydived. Yes, I have. You have? Okay. Well, I have not. But I've always wanted to, but I've never gotten the guts to plan it and actually do it. I mean, this video is amazing. Amy, what Amy does is totally amazing. It looks totally awesome. But at the same time, to me, it's terrifying to me at the exact same time. To you, it's not. You did this. How? Why? When? Where? Well, I think for me, though, it was a little different because I had been paragliding for a few years by the time I went skydiving. So I felt a little more at home in the sky. Also, I was a tandem skydive. So, uh -huh. you know, like I was like, well, if we die, it's not my fault. <laughs> God. Well, okay. Well, there we go. Like, when we think about these types of professional athletes, right, these daredevils, I think two thoughts usually cross our minds. We figure that they're crazy adrenaline junkies that have a few screws loose, or we think that they have this, like, superhero mental control, right? Like, they're not susceptible to the emotional brain quagmire that us mere mortals have to deal with. Mm -hmm. But neither of those things are true. It's certainly not the case for Amy. Plus, she has this eyebrow-raising idea about how we can navigate those mental minefields that can so often and so easily derail us. I believe flexibility creates success. Flexible, like how? What does that mean? And what does it mean to succeed? Let's dig into this, pals. I'm Patty O'Connell. And I'm Elizabeth Nakano. Welcome to Safety Third, a show about ideas and how we come to believe in them. I think that 
the first thing that gave me that feeling of being free in the air was when I was really young, I would swing on the swing at the playground and go as high as I could, just higher and higher. And then when I was as high as I could, I would just jump off and just this feeling of flying through the air before I land in the sand. It was just, it was my favorite. I loved that. You just wanted to be in that free fall. Yeah, I wanted that that feeling of freedom that I imagined being in free fall would give me. And I don't remember all the details, but people around me were talking about two women that had gone skydiving, and it put a thought in my head of skydiving. Like, yeah, these two women went skydiving. That That's what I want to do. And after that moment, that was like a seed that just got planted in my head. I was 14 years old when I heard that conversation. At that time in my life, I had started finding success for the first time through sports. I really had never been successful in academics. Like I had this agreement that academics, if you were not successful in academics, then you were not successful. Mm-hmm. And when I started finding success through sports, it really gave me a great feeling, a happiness that um, I, I realized that I could be successful at something and be happy and, and feel good about myself. Well, where did that kind of, that that idea that if you weren't successful in school, then you just weren't successful. Where'd that come from? It came from being in school. I I had a lot of trouble in those early years. I kept, I remember thinking, what is everybody talking about? I don't understand <laughs> that people would be reading books, like the kids around me would be reading and then interacting with the teacher, answering these questions and I would have no idea what anyone was talking about. I could not comprehend what was going on in front of me. And it was really hard as a child to feel stupid. It really felt terrible. I was always removed from the classroom and brought to special classrooms. Teachers really didn't know what to do with me. I had uh, one teacher so mad. She she kept me in the corner. And I remember, oh, my kindergarten teacher, she was nasty. She, I remember her keeping me in the corner for what seemed like in my memory it was forever because I couldn't look at the calendar and tell her what day of the week it was and well she sounds like a gem of a teacher (laughs) (laughs) jesus christ that was catholic school and you know (laughs) yes sister rose that was her name oh poor sister rose i think she was doing the best she can but Uh, uh, i don't know if she was doing the best she could uh, (laughs) (laughs) it's all she do when amy was around 10 years old she was diagnosed with dyslexia After that, teachers worked more closely with her, and she was taken out of a typical classroom setting to get extra time on tests. Amy says that this helped immensely with her schooling, but feeling different led to a pretty poor self-image. Then, when she was 13, things shifted when she began to play field hockey. I realized that I could see things 
better than people around me. And I could move faster. And when things were moving fast, I could perform really well. Yeah. I saw that the coach would come to me for things. And I started to realize that I was a real important part of the team. I was uh, brought onto the varsity team at an early age. And um, it started to really become my identity. I would win all sorts of awards and get lots of credit. People started treating me a lot better in general, in school. And it just, yeah, it was overall a, a good feeling. It made me feel important and like I had a purpose. But but more than that, I, I was just having so much fun. It was so important just to feel good about something you do. And then once I had that feeling, I wanted it more and more. So sports became a focus While Amy was crushing sports in high school and gaining confidence, she was also biding her time to skydive. That story about the women skydiving inspired her at 14, but she had to wait till she was 18, you know, because the lawn junk. Once her birthday hit, Amy went to a place called Skydive the Ranch near her home in Gardner, New York, and she finally got to do a tandem skydive. I remember being in the door and the wind in my face and then being in free fall and just focusing on doing what they told me to do and having fun, just really, really having a good time. And the whole free fall was great. Everything went really fast. I And it was almost, it was hard to really process. It's a bit blurry, your first skydive, because it's all of your senses at once start to experience something that they have trouble comprehending. So a lot of people get what's called sensory overload. It was just a a feeling of, I guess you could say being overwhelmed in a way, but not in a bad way. It was a really, it was a really good feeling. It was more calming and peaceful than I had expected. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't think that. Yeah, it what I think that is is just basically any other chatter you have in your head, anything else that's going yeah. on just goes away. It all goes away and you're in this moment of just enjoying the sensation of what's happening at the moment and that's really peaceful. That's <laughs> That sounds, I'm, so, I'm sorry to laugh, that sounds like kind of re- like a ridiculous statement, you know? You're like, oh, for the first time I jumped out of this plane and I was like, oh, namaste, my friends. <laughs> I am very peace. I am at peace. I am one with everything. I mean, to me, I would. I feel like I would like run out of breath because of the screaming that I was doing, like <laughs> the opposite of calm. So, so you're, you're hooked after that first time, right? Yeah, instantly. Amy got into the sport slowly. Skydiving is expensive. And at the time, Amy was committed to getting her degree. So while she finished up at school, she enrolled in the accelerated skydive freefall program at Skydive the Ranch. That's where she learned the basics. After she graduated, Amy moved to Arizona to work and train at Skydive Arizona. It's the world's largest skydiving facility. I thought I would take one year off and then get a real job. So I was bartending at the uh, skydiving bar on the skydiving facility. That was in 98. 
And that one year turned into two, three, 24 years. That sounds like, man, you've had a good post-grad <laughs> year. <I would> <laughs> yeah, that, that year off has been amazing. Four years after moving to Arizona, Amy landed her first official sponsor in 2001. It was Skydive Chicago. And now I had this opportunity to go somewhere where a skydiving facility was going to pay for my skydives, which was like, they're expensive. I mean, they were less expensive then, but still, they're really expensive. So it was a super, super cool opportunity for me. And it was like the break that, I needed and I I didn't expect to happen. I think more I had a imposter syndrome. I thought, wow, like I can't believe this is happening. Like why? I remember talking to some of my friends that had been sponsored, and I'm like, I don't know what to do. How do I become prepared? It was I was a bit nervous. I felt like I wanted to be successful, not necessarily that meant that I was successful. When I was that age, I thought. I'm not going to – I had this kind of thought that I wasn't going to live very long. So, What do you mean by that? Uh, well, you know how – I don't know if you're family, but my father was always like, ah, oh, you got to save your money. You got to start now and you got to plan. You got to plan your career so you could have your children. And it was just like this – no one could really understand in the outside – world like especially my family like what what are you doing how are you gonna ever be successful you're gonna crash and burn it was i don't know i just really didn't have a grasp on what it meant to plan for a future because i couldn't fathom one if that makes any sense at all (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it does. You think you couldn't fathom one because you were like, well, you know, I I can't fathom like preparing to live my like doing a bunch of shit that I don't want to do right now so I can prepare to live a happy life in, you know, 20, 30, 40 years. I want to live that happy life right now. Is that what you mean? That is what I mean. And it was conflicted with the idea of what I believed I had to do. In my 20s through my early 30s, I was able to keep any turmoil that I had on the inside very well hidden and present to the world something that I knew was marketable and that I knew would give me successes in my career. But on the inside, I was tore up a lot. I had uh, this internal conflict where there was so much pressure in my head. And I, I, looking back, I, I really think it was me trying to control so much, trying to control outcomes, trying to control people around me, trying to kind of, um, not being able to just relax and really like understand what was important um uh, you know what people always would say just just be yourself just be yourself and I'm like I, I don't even know what that means like what <laughs> but I I was having a very amazing career and and progression in my career and I was getting paid to fly around the world and skydive which was like 
amazing, but on the inside, I was not happy. I was really struggling. After that first sponsor, more came in. Each sponsorship came with little perks, like Amy got small trips, and sometimes the costs of gear and jumps were covered. Amy says that these outward signs of professional success were great, but she was still working to make ends meet, and the bigger struggle was internal, and it was overshadowing everything else. I felt like a prisoner in my own head. It was... I was really just like running around in circles, chasing my own tail, trying to uh, control things that I could not control. I remember this feeling of my head being so full of pressure that literally I thought if I put an ice pick through my head, it would feel better. Like, I just remember like holding my head down and just thinking that, okay, not that in any way was, that wasn't a suicidal thought. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't wanting to hurt myself. It just felt pressure, like literal pressure in my head that I wanted to be relieved. I think the ultimate struggle that I had was in my my personal, my intimate relationship with my boyfriend at the time, it was like running around in circles trying to convince this person that my core value system was better and that he, if only he adopted it, it would give him a better life and then give us a better life. And my inability to just let him be him kept me in a miserable situation, but also my inability to let go of that situation kept us in an unhealthy situation, unhealthy relationship. And I really like that. That was a big, big struggle for me. And it was kind of underlining everything else I did, although I was able to go to work and be successful on every level at work. There was just like this, oof internal struggle happening at home that ultimately just uh, like I wasn't happy. Coming up after the break, Amy's battle for control reaches a tipping point. I was maybe 27 when I first started seeing, uh, searching for a therapist. There was constant chaos in my home environment. And eventually, I got sick of it enough to call. I mean, I called in the middle of the night, I, st I got on the phone. And I started calling all the therapists in my area and just leaving them messages. And I was like, God, they must think I'm crazy. I'm, <laughs> I'm calling in the middle of the night, like they're gonna get to work, you know. But eventually, I found this really nice woman she was 73 and she was just like hey girlfriend sit down what do you want to talk about and she was a professional at understanding how to like make amends with traumas that you have from your past and how to rise above them and develop better coping methods and it was just it was 
so great to experience that. I mean, it was, um, yeah, it was uh, life-changing. The work Amy did with her therapist focused on letting go of her need to manage people, situations, and outcomes. Their goal was for her to become a little more malleable with her approach and reactions to life. My therapist was always pushing this one day at a time type of mentality, which was hard for me to comprehend at first. I thought, well, you know, you got a plan. Like, I, I, I didn't really understand. And she said, okay, carpe, carpe diem is more like trash your body now, live life to the fullest, which I think I, I was a little bit more had that mindset as in my early 20s. It was just like, go big or go home, zero consequences. But that, that's not very sustainable. So adopting this philosophy of taking things one day at a time is so is so calming to me and just, yeah, just being able to be flexible on that day-to-day life. Really, there are only a few things that matter that ultimately matter. And, and that thought brings just a happiness to me on the reg. Being able to quickly tap into an ener- a confident energy that stems from a collection of thoughts of success throughout my history that prove to me that I can handle anything that happens. And when I go to that place, it just relaxes me. And it, it helps me like accomplish, um, it, it just helps me think clear and like get through difficult situations. Amy and her therapist also uprooted a deeper issue. She helped me understand that there were memories from my past that were still in there. They're part of me. She basically brought those memories to the surface and, and brought out like this really sobbing baby. Like I was, when I really, she brought me to this place where I, I, could, I couldn't even really talk or uh, I was crying. I was remembering um, trauma from my childhood and she guided me through some different meditation techniques where she brought me to a place where I could tap into a confidence and a calm that really just would alleviate the pressure would it was really just great and she would guide me through meditation and now I'm able to get to that place quickly and really um, just tap into that energy and it completely calms me down it takes away all of the chatter and all of like the noise that was filling that space. And I can just kind of focus on what's happening at the moment and be relaxed and be confident and make much more clear decisions. And when you say that your therapist helped you through some of these traumatic events from your childhood, um, do you feel comfortable talking about them? My father was an alcoholic. He was drinking, um, running around. I mean, okay, I, I do feel a bit bad because, you know, he's still alive today. He's recovered and he's grown into an amazing man with um, and an amazing father. And I, I know he always was 
doing the best he could, but he was young and he did not know how to really, uh, he was nasty. Like he just, <laughs> he was just a nasty man at that time. And um, through my childhood and it, it was all the things that you think of that are related to growing up in an alcoholic environment. I mean, he he wasn't home a lot. He he was uh, my mom was constantly stressed, constantly trying to um, keep peace. Like it's a hard environment for a family to survive in and for a kid to survive in. Amy says she discovered a connection between the household she grew up in and her need for control as an adult. Amy would get into a relationship or a situation that was chaotic or high pressure, and she tried to steer it toward her predetermined outcome. But it never worked. Slowly, Amy let go of that need for control. Amy says by 34, she had a better grip on her emotional health. She started to set goals for herself in sand rather than concrete, meaning that she gave herself the freedom to change and adapt to life as it develops. And once she did, lo and behold, her life and her career became less of a challenge. I had had this dream of being a world champion in skydiving, and it was something that I was obsessed with. I was on skydiving, competitive skydiving teams through my 20s, and it was something that was, it was my goal. I I really wanted to be a world champion. And I tried hard. I was on lots of different teams. I was on one team called Arizona Arsenal for seven years training every day, committing all my time to it. And it just, it just wasn't happening. And it was was stressful, the thought of just like, oh, well, I'm not going to get this goal. In the late 90s, Amy heard about the Red Bull Air Force. It's a professional skydive team that specializes in coordinated aerial stunts. It's a really big deal. Amy thought she would put her interest in the team out there and see what happened. So she called her buddy John, who worked at Red Bull. I said, hey, you need a girl. You need a girl on the team. Like, what's up with you guys? Come on. And he said, yeah, you're right. We do, and we want one. So uh, why don't you come on this job? And he hired me for a demo, a demonstration jump, and then he hired me for another one. And he kind of hired me part-time for a couple years. Working with Red Bull was a dream job for Amy. But the work was part-time and sporadic and spread out over the course of 10 years. She wanted to be a full-time member of Red Bull's team, but she had learned to stop trying to control every aspect of her future. Eventually, that patience paid off, and she was offered a contract. For me, it was more about getting to work with a company that was going to help me have the, that was going to sponsor me and invest in me to do the things that I do that I love to do and help me do the things that I really am dreaming about. When the Red Bull contract came through, when the offer came through, were you like, hell yeah, I've made it? Yeah, I was. (laughs) 
how can we set goals for ourselves, work toward them, but not be married or handcuffed to outcomes? I think being able to let go and change your goal, to me, is successful. People say happiness is uh, they confuse some emotions with happiness, like joy or comfort or elation. Um, there's there's all different kinds of positive type feelings, but happiness is something that's underlying that even if I get angry, I trust my abilities to create a better environment for myself where that feeling of anger hopefully doesn't happen again. How can flexibility lead to success? I'd like to use my relationship, my my marriage, to describe how I feel like I'm successful. Most people say, okay, till death do us part and for all of eternity. And that's this idea that most of society has agreed that that's what marriage means. But for both of us, that idea just did not resonate. It really made us both uncomfortable. So we've decided to take things one day at a time. And when problems arise in our relationship, where in the past I might have gone, ah, oh, thinking like 10 years down the road, how am I going to deal with this every day? And, oh, you know, something small and meaningless. And now I just say, all right. I love my husband. I love him. I'm not leaving him today. Like, let's just see. This isn't a huge deal. Let's see where it goes tomorrow. And and then it's done. And then things that truly don't matter just kind of disappear and we're able to maintain a day-to-day happy life in our marriage or when I am on a Red Bull job where the team has gone to do a demonstration jump, there's there's a whole show. We have planes. We're, we're flying with the plane. We're flying with the helicopter and the timing. And this like whole kind of show is uh, planned out. But things change and you have to improvise quite often. So everyone on our team just stays relaxed and stays positive and has a good time and goes with the flow. And ultimately that creates a clear mindset to still execute our job safely and give the audience a show, a good show, even though it might not be what we had rehearsed or what we had planned. And um, yeah, we all operate on that level And it ends up being great and just good vibes and a good work environment versus like stressed out and, you know, on the edge of like trying to keep it perfect all the time because that that just doesn't exist. You got to let go of of things you can't control and just control the things you can and be relaxed about the journey because – Yeah, when you get all stressed out and crazy about things, just nothing good ever comes out of that. You've been listening to Safety Third. Our guest today was Amy Shemalecki, 
And to learn more about what she's doing, go ahead and check out her Instagram at Amy Shemalecki. If you'd like today's show, then let your people know about it, friends. You know, Safety Third is kind of like peanut butter. Hear me out. To properly enjoy it, you gotta spread it. So get a healthy gob of S3 and smear it across the minds and hearts of your pals, pals. Tell your friends, tell your fam, and tell everybody you know. And remember to crank that dial to 11. You can find us on Instagram at safety third underscore podcast and on the old interwebs at safety Safety Third is produced by Elizabeth Nicano. Cordelia Zars edited this episode. Additional production help from Jay McAuliffe. Music by my big brother, Brendan. Recycling Sully boxers by turning them inside out is a thing that I do, O'Connell. Art direction by Anya Miller-Berg. Fitz Cahal is our creative director. Becca Cahal is our executive producer. And I'm your host, Patty O'Connell. Okie dokie, my friends. Until next time, keep it tight, keep it loose, and remember... Safety third.